3: I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details.
4: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode from the midweek edition of the Coin Bureau podcast. Every week, I pick out two of my favorite videos from Coin Bureau's YouTube channel, to present to you in podcast form. The audio you're about to hear is from those videos I've chosen this week, and I hope you enjoy listening. You'll no doubt be pleased to hear that FTX doesn't feature prominently in either of the sections you'll hear today. It still hangs like a black cloud over the crypto industry, but there are other things we need to focus on, such as what Jerome Powell and his crew at the Federal Reserve are thinking about the economy, and why the crypto market could still go lower from here. It's been a few weeks since the folks at the Fed last hiked interest rates and many have been speculating, or praying, that they may ease off on raising them any further. As always, investors have been hanging on every scrap of information to emerge from FedHQ and we got a whole dollop of it recently when the minutes of the last Fed meeting were published a couple of weeks ago. So, in the first part of today's video, you'll hear our analysis of those minutes and what they could signal for the US and other economies in the coming months. There's still lots to be concerned about. Speaking of things to be concerned about, the crypto bear market we're in could still get more, well, bearish, before things start to look up. There are a number of macro and crypto-specific factors that could yet push prices lower, and they're the topic for the second part of today's episode. From yet more FTX contagion... I knew we'd touch on it at some point, to Bitcoin miners struggling, to the stock market and beyond, crypto has a minefield to walk through before things can get better, and some of those mines contain a lot of explosives. Have a listen and watch your step. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and there'll be more coming your way soon. And if you want even more content from Coin Bureau, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and visit us on social media too. Last week, the Federal Reserve published the minutes, that is, summary, of its most recent meeting. The minutes revealed that most Fed officials want to slow the pace of interest rate hikes going forward. The news caused markets to rally on the possibility that the Fed will pivot. The problem is that slowing the pace of rate hikes is not the same thing as lowering rates themselves, and the headlines don't tell the full story. That's why today I'm going to take a closer look at the Fed's most recent minutes, Summarize what they say in simple terms and tell you exactly what it could mean for the markets in the coming months. Okay, let's start with a bit of background. As most of you will know, the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. What most of you may not know is that the Fed itself consists of 12 regional banks that are scattered across the United States, each of which has its own president. As most of you will know, the Fed is governed by seven governors, which include Fed Chairman Jerome Powell. What some of you may not also know is that the central bank's monetary policy is decided by the Federal Open Markets Committee, or FOMC. The FOMC consists of the Fed's seven governors, the president of the New York Fed, and four of the other presidents of the Fed's other regional banks. The regional Fed presidents who sit on the FOMC change every year, save, of course, for the president of the New York Fed, who has a permanent seat. In theory, each member of the FOMC casts a vote supporting or opposing the committee's decision on whether or not to raise or lower interest rates, and the final vote determines the rate hike. In practice, however, the Fed chairman, in this case Jerome, apparently has the final say. In addition to Jerome, the FOMC currently consists of the following personnel. Fed Governors Lael Brainard, Michael Barr, Michelle Bowman, Lisa Cook, Philip Jefferson and Christopher Waller. New York Fed President John Williams, Boston Fed President Susan Collins, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, Kansas City President Esther George and Cleveland Fed President Loretta J. Mester. I'll quickly note that Michael Barr actually wrote the law that created the position of vice chair for supervision, which he now holds. Michael seems to be intent on using the laws he wrote in the aftermath of 2008 to crack down on crypto. More about that using the link in the description. Now, all 12 FOMC officials were present at the Fed's last meeting. This is in addition to around 50 other academics and economists who work for the Fed, including members of the Fed's other regional banks. The FOMC's last meeting took place on the 1st and 2nd of November. To clarify, the minutes of these meetings are not released until around three weeks after the meeting in question takes place. This is presumably to give the markets guidance about interest rates between Fed meetings, which occur around every six weeks. Obviously, what investors look for in the Fed's minutes is evidence of the central bank's plans regarding interest rates. Every single word is scrutinized to see if the FOMC is being hawkish, i.e. planning on raising interest rates, or dovish, i.e. planning on lowering them. As almost all of you will know, raising interest rates tends to cause markets to crash, whereas lowering them tends to cause markets to rally. Because markets are forward-looking, Assets tend to react immediately to the Fed's minutes, even though the rate hike or rate cut hasn't actually happened yet. So, with that background under your belt, let's see what the FOMC had to say. The first part of the Fed's meeting was a, quote, ethics discussion, wherein Fed Chairman Jerome Powell reminded everyone present to be on their best behavior. In other words, no sharing of insider information, no insider trading, And make sure to report all your investments. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. With that bit of business done, the second part of the meeting was about rate hikes. FOMC officials discussed how they're planning to raise interest rates higher than they had planned in September, something that Jerome had told the public in the Fed's subsequent press conference. We actually summarized Jerome's press conference too. That will also be in the description. Now, one thing that Jerome didn't tell the public during his press conference was that most FOMC officials see a 50-basis-point hike as being appropriate at the Fed's next meeting. For context, the Fed has been aggressively raising rates at 75 basis points a pop for the last few months. This basically confirms what Jerome denied, which is that the Fed is planning on slowing the pace of rate hikes. As I mentioned in the introduction, this caused markets to rally across the board, except for crypto because it was busy getting wrecked by the FTX Alameda situation. The FOMC also mentioned the blow-up in UK government bonds in September and cautioned that the early warning signs of a similar event are starting to emerge in the US, namely low liquidity. The FOMC also touched on how other currencies are collapsing against the US dollar, but didn't have much to say on the matter. What's interesting is that the FOMC reveals that the Federal Reserve and other central banks are actively losing money due to higher interest rates. Fortunately for the central banks, they don't technically need to be profitable, even though the Fed is technically a private company, the more you know. Now, the third part of the Fed's meeting was about the economy. The FOMC officials discussed the surprisingly positive GDP print for Q3 in the United States, the continually tight labor market, and the increase in the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, or PCE, the Fed's favorite inflation gauge. Oddly enough, the Fed went on to discuss how labor market conditions are looking for different minority groups and seem to blame most of the economic issues we're facing on the war in Ukraine, China's zero-COVID policy, and tighter financial conditions as a result of higher interest rates. The FOMC also touched on the rising inflation in other countries, caused primarily by disruptions to energy supplies. They noted, that foreign central banks have raised interest rates to try and fight this inflation, but have slowed their rate hikes as they realize there's only so much demand they can destroy. The fourth part of the Fed's meeting was about financial conditions. There's a lot to cover here, so I'll just give you the highlights. First, the FOMC seemingly took issue with the recovery in the stock market that started in mid-October. This would make sense, as it's essentially the markets challenging the Fed. Second, investors have been selling off foreign assets and deploying that dry powder into U.S. assets, mainly U.S. government debt. This makes sense given that U.S. government debt is providing increasingly higher interest rates and is also considered to be the safest asset in the eyes of institutional investors. This phenomenon of money flowing into the United States is actually part of the so-called dollar milkshake theory proposed by an increasingly popular macroanalyst named Brent Johnson. The TLDR is that most of the world's money will flow into the US as foreign countries and currencies collapse. You'd think that this would be incredibly bullish for the US dollar and US assets and it will be for a while. The thing is, that the dollar milkshake theory ends with the U.S. dollar and U.S. assets collapsing too. Note that this process will take many years and possibly decades to play out, assuming Brent's theory is true. Now, the third thing that caught my eye in the FOMC's financial overview was the rapidly rising interest rates on credit card debt in the United States. This is concerning because credit card debt in the United States recently hit an all-time high of over $930 billion. I reckon $1 trillion is just weeks away. This relates to the fourth takeaway, and that's that the housing market continues to slide on the back of rising interest rates and that banks are becoming less eager to lend to consumers. This is essentially true of auto loans and credit card-related loans, which is understandable given the statistic I just mentioned. Regarding financial stability, stress tests conducted in conjunction with the largest U.S. banks suggest that they would be resilient in the event of a severe economic downturn. However, the FOMC couldn't say the same for hedge funds and other entities in the financial sector due to their high levels of leverage. This ties into the fifth part of the Fed's meeting, which was about its economic outlook. If I understand correctly, the FOMC is projecting that output of the US economy will be, quote, below potential until 2025, and that unemployment will simultaneously stay above 4% until that time. This might have something to do with the fact that the FOMC raised its inflation projections for the coming quarters. Logically, This means that the Fed will have to continue raising interest rates or at least keep them higher for longer to fight this inflation, resulting in the aforementioned economic conditions. For what it's worth, the FOMC expects inflation to come back down to 2% as measured by the core PCE in 2025. This is expected, given that what the FOMC is effectively forecasting is a long recession that will last at least two years, and recessions tend to reduce inflation. As a cherry on top, the FOMC cautioned that their baseline projections are, quote, skewed to the downside. Put simply, they know that their economic projections are likely to get worse, not better, as more economic data comes in. This makes sense, given that an energy crisis could happen over the winter. More about that in the description. Anyways, the sixth part of the Fed's meeting was again about current economic conditions. The FOMC again blames Russia's invasion of Ukraine as being a primary driver of inflation. I'll just remind you that central banks printed trillions upon trillions of dollars in response to the pandemic in early 2020. Most of the inflation related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine also has to do with sanctions that don't seem to be working, but let's not go there. Funnily enough, the FOMC says that another decline in real GDP would be helpful in bringing inflation back down. As a fun fact, Bank of America seems to have predicted the sudden GDP spike in Q3 this year. The rest of its projection says that real GDP will again go negative starting next year. Take note. The FOMC also discussed the status of household balance sheets. Believe it or not, but there's still record levels of savings in the U.S. economy, thanks to all the pandemic stimulus. The catch is that most of these savings are concentrated with wealthier individuals and institutions. There's a surprise. On the lower end, individuals and institutions are starting to report financial stress. I reckon the record levels of credit card debt say it all. Even so, Jerome mentioned at the Fed's most recent press conference that the higher overall savings should cushion the U.S. economy from a severe recession. Makes you wonder whether it was all planned. More about that in the description. Now, after discussing the collective effects the rising interest rates of central banks are having on the global economy, the FOMC focused on the supposedly tight labour market in the United States. I say supposedly because there's lots of debate about how accurate the unemployment statistics are. Case in point tech companies have literally laid off over 100,000 people over the last few months and are planning to lay off hundreds of thousands more. Going forward, this might just be a case of media bias, but it really looks like people are starting to lose their jobs across the board. This is implied by the FOMC in the minutes, as they note the supply of labour coming in line with the demand for labour. They also note that most of the demand for labour is coming from low skilled, low paying jobs that recently fired, six figure salaried software developers probably won't be doing anytime soon. What sucks is that the people working these low-skilled, low-paying jobs are being squeezed the most by inflation. The element that's been hitting most people the hardest is the cost of accommodation, i.e. rents. What really sucks is the FOMC projects rents will be one of the last inflation dominoes to fall. Now, when it comes to inflation expectations the FOMC observed that long-term inflation expectations remain, quote, well-anchored, as Jerome loves to say. However, they cautioned that if long-term inflation expectations start to rise again, then it could make their fight against inflation that much fiercer. What's fascinating is that the FOMC seems to have gotten into a small argument over how long it takes for the Fed's rate hikes to affect the economy. The section of the minutes breaking down this exchange is one of the lengthiest by far, which is why I suspect there was lots of back and forth there. For those who don't know, Jerome seems to believe that the Fed's rate hikes have a near-immediate impact on the economy. His reasoning is that the economy has become so financialized that it doesn't take more than a few months for the effects of rate hikes to be felt. By contrast, the academics on the FOMC argue that it takes much longer for rate hikes to impact the economy. This is because history suggests that it takes up to 18 months for the effects of rate hikes to be felt. Jerome seems to have pushed back by pointing out that this historical data is shaky at best. The FOMC quote generally noted that their economic projections are uncertain and they believe that inflation is more likely to increase than decrease in the short to medium term. Some members once again repeated that this is all Russia and China's fault. Good thing Jerome knows what's up. In terms of U.S. Treasuries, the FOMC once again acknowledged that markets for U.S. government debt are lacking liquidity but remain, quote, orderly. If you're wondering why liquidity is important, that's because high liquidity means that you can sell a large amount of an asset without moving its price. Now, I couldn't help but notice that some members of the FOMC, quote, noted the risks posed by non-bank financial institutions amid the rapid global tightening of monetary policy and the potential for hidden leverage in these institutions to amplify shocks. I see you, Michael Barr. The FOMC went on to agree on raising interest rates by another 75 basis points and patted themselves on the back for raising rates so aggressively. They agreed that the labour market is tight, at least on paper, and that means they can continue raising interest rates while claiming the economy is fine. After repeating the mantra that the Fed is committed to bringing inflation back down to its 2% target, the FOMC reiterated that they want to slow the pace of rate hikes. This is because they want to see how much the already high interest rates will affect the economy and don't want to risk breaking something. Now, the last part of the Fed's meeting was about the FOMC's monetary policy decisions. This part of the minutes mostly repeats everything from the previous sections. I couldn't help but notice that the wording is almost identical to what Jerome had said during his press conferences. Copy-paste is a powerful tool indeed. In all seriousness, the FOMC agreed that it must make it clear to the public that it will continue to monitor incoming data when it comes to future rate hikes. It seems that this is not being underscored enough because what's currently being priced in by investors is that the Fed will pause and then pivot. In any case, the FOMC also agreed to continue selling assets off the central bank's balance sheet. If you watched our video about Jerome Powell's testimonies to politicians, you'll know he tacitly admitted that this balance sheet runoff will eventually lead to higher interest rates. Also something nobody is noticing. Surprisingly, all members of the FOMC voted in favour of the 75 basis point rate hike and the other ongoing actions being taken by the Fed, such as the balance sheet runoff. This is surprising because it suggests that even the more dovish members of the FOMC realise that inflation will stick around for a while. This brings me to the big question, and that's what all this means for the markets in the coming months. In short, it could really go either way. From where I'm standing, the Fed has made it clear that it will adjust interest rates in response to inflation and employment statistics. In case you haven't noticed, things aren't looking too good on the inflation front. Large amounts of stimulus, supply chain issues caused by pandemic restrictions, and yes, the war in Ukraine and China's zero COVID policies all look like they're going to keep inflation high. The most inflationary factor, however, seems to be the reshoring of supply chains. The disruptions to supply chains caused by all the above has pushed many countries to start bringing manufacturing back within their borders, especially the manufacturing of microchips. If you watched our recent video about Goldman Sachs' analysis of the Fed's 2% target, you'll know it's possible that we will be entering a prolonged period of higher inflation as a result. This begs the question of whether the Fed would accept a 3% or 4% inflation rate, and the answer currently isn't clear. On the employment side, things are looking kind of sketchy. I am by no means an expert in employment statistics, but I've been hearing in many macro podcasts that these stats are calculated in questionable ways. The same is true of inflation statistics, but we all knew that already. This begs the question of just how much the books can be cooked to convince the American public that the job market is doing just fine, or rather, how hard the FOMC can squint at the numbers until they see what they want. I reckon it'll be hard to keep up the illusion when the average person's own lying eyes start to notice that everyone around them is losing their job. I'm sure the fact-checkers will come in with full force on that one, but so long as free speech on Twitter exists, the truth will find its way out. Thanks, Elon. In sum, then, it's going to be a very uncertain few months for both the Fed and, therefore, the markets. Assuming the Fed follows through on slowing the pace of rate hikes and pausing sometime early next year, we could finally see some recovery rallies in stocks, cryptocurrencies and other assets. That said, I have a bad feeling that we're going to see a bearish catalyst that takes all assets much lower than they currently are. A catalyst that will shake retail investors to the core and cause institutional investors to run screaming into the arms of the Fed. Let's hope I'm wrong about that one.
3: And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Earlier this year, we made two very important videos about crypto. One was about when the crypto bear market could end and the other was about how low cryptocurrencies could go during the bear market. Over the last few months, we've been keeping a close eye on the indicators we identified in those two videos. Now, the good news is that they seem to be accurate. The bad news is that the bottom isn't in yet. Today, I'm going to explain why the crypto bear market will likely continue, when it's likely to end, and estimate how low cryptocurrencies could go before it's over. This is a video you don't want to miss. I want to start by saying that nobody knows the future, not even me. Everything in this video is based on the best information my research team and I could find. Note that this is information that could change at a moment's notice. It should also go without saying that nothing in this video is financial advice. That said, the first reason why the crypto bear market is likely to continue is because retail investors haven't capitulated yet. In other words, lots of regular crypto investors are still holding on to their coins and tokens, despite some massive losses. This is also true for stocks and other assets with retail exposure. Now that second point is significant because the prices of tech stocks and cryptocurrencies are highly correlated. This correlation has been less apparent in recent weeks as crypto-specific factors, such as the FTX Alameda situation, have caused a slight decoupling. I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, there was some retail capitulation in mid-October when inflation in the United States came in hotter than expected. This crashed the stock market and caused a small flash crash in crypto. However, some sources suggest that most retail investors were still buying those dips. Not only that, but the stock market has been rallying since its recent October lows. This seems to be because the minutes of the Federal Reserve's most recent meetings suggest that the central bank will start slowing the pace of rate hikes in mid-December. It's also believed that stocks will see a Santa Claus rally. At the same time, it's possible that the stock market will crash in December when pension funds are forced to sell assets and regular people sell assets to finance their holiday shopping. It's also possible that the Fed will raise rates higher than investors are currently pricing in. This would also crash the stock market. Given the brutal macro backdrop of energy shortages, inflation, rising interest rates, pandemic restrictions, and the war in Ukraine, the likelihood of a dump seems higher than that of a pump. The technicals for stock indices like the S&P 500 also suggest that stocks will soon resume their long-term downtrends. Regardless, the stock market will continue its longer-term downtrend at some point. While the reversal could happen as soon as December, it's possible that it won't come until early next year, when consumers realise they took on a bit too much debt during the holiday season and start selling. When the stock market correction inevitably comes, it will likely take the crypto market lower as well. The technicals for the NASDAQ suggest it could fall by around 20-25% to from its current price in the next correction. This would bring the NASDAQ back down to its pre-pandemic levels, which would make sense. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the prices of tech stocks and cryptocurrencies tend to move in parallel. The only difference is that cryptocurrencies are more volatile, i.e. have a high beta with the market. In practical terms, a 20-25% to 25% drop in the Nasdaq would translate to a 40-50% to 50% drop in large-cap cryptos and much more for those with smaller market caps. The second reason why the crypto bear market is likely to continue relates to the first, and that's all the speculation and leverage that we continue to see in the crypto market. As some of you will know, an easy way to measure speculation in the crypto market is to look at Bitcoin dominance. For those unfamiliar, Bitcoin dominance is a measure of how much of the total crypto market cap is just BTC. Because BTC is seen as the safest cryptocurrency, Bitcoin dominance tends to rise when the entire crypto market is falling. And Bitcoin dominance tends to fall when the entire crypto market is rising. As you can see, Bitcoin dominance has been stuck at around 40% for more than a year, and though it did rise to almost 50% in June after Terra collapsed, it has since fallen back down to around 40%. What this means is that money has resumed moving into altcoins, and that means there's still lots of speculation. The caveat is that it's possible that ETH has also become a safe haven in the eyes of crypto holders. This means that part of Bitcoin's dominance is essentially being shared with Ethereum. Unfortunately, the dominance for both has been on the decline, and this arguably proves that lots of speculation is indeed present. If you need more proof, consider that meme coins like Dogecoin were pumping as recently as last week. There have also been a few headlines about small and medium cap coins that have more than doubled in price over the course of just a couple of days. That is pure speculation, or price manipulation. Until we stop seeing Dogecoin pump by double digits every time Elon Musk teases Twitter's upcoming features, then it's safe to assume that the crypto bear market bottom isn't in yet. Now, speculation is mostly the retail side of the equation. Leverage is where the institutions come in. Some of you may recall that there was a record level of ETH liquidations at the end of October, when leverage traders got wrecked to the tune of half a billion dollars over two days. The collapse of FTX and Alameda also led to around a billion dollars of liquidations for BTC and ETH in the days that followed. Funnily enough, recent research by Coinshares suggests that institutional investors have been shorting the crypto market at record levels. This logically means that they will get liquidated at record levels if the crypto market somehow rallies in December, which is possible given what I mentioned earlier. It's important to remember that leverage doesn't just mean trading either. Many institutions in cryptocurrency have given each other massive loans over the last couple of years. Some of these loans involved cryptocurrencies which have since fallen significantly. The elephant in the room in this regard is FTX and Alameda Research, whose FTT-backed loans eventually led to their bankruptcies. If the headlines didn't make it clear enough, the contagion of leverage between these and other crypto companies continues, and it looks like Genesis Global will be the next to collapse. More about that in the description. Anyways, the third reason why the crypto bear market is likely to continue is because Bitcoin's hash rate hasn't crashed yet. For context, Bitcoin's hash rate has historically fallen by between 40 and 50% around the time that BTC hit its bottom. And, of course, BTC leads the rest of the crypto market. Bitcoin's hash rate collapsing around BTC's bottom makes sense on both sides of the cause-and-effect relationship. If BTC's price falls, then it becomes unprofitable to mine BTC. This forces the least profitable Bitcoin miners to shut up shop, which causes Bitcoin's hash rate to fall. As some of you may have heard, lots of Bitcoin mining companies are starting to struggle, particularly the publicly traded ones. To give two examples, in late September Compute North filed for bankruptcy and in late October, Core Scientific warned it was on the brink of doing the same. This is because the average cost of mining a BTC is currently around 18k, and the BTC price is below that at the time of shooting. This means that most Bitcoin miners are losing lots of money and have likely been selling lots of their existing BTC to stay afloat. This is evidenced by Glassnode's Miner Net Position Change Indicator, which suggests Bitcoin miners have been aggressively selling BTC since its price dropped below 20k. It's possible that this selling has suppressed BTC's price, but it's probable that most of this BTC is being sold over-the-counter, or OTC. If you watched our video about Bitcoin miners selling BTC, you'll know that the lowest price BTC can go before the Bitcoin blockchain is at risk is 8K. The thing is that this was back in August when Bitcoin's difficulty was 20% lower and it therefore required much less energy to mine 1 BTC. What this means is that the lowest price BTC could go before Bitcoin itself is in trouble is now just under 10K. However, this assumes that the Bitcoin difficulty will stay the same or increase. This is unlikely, as Bitcoin's hash rate has finally started to decline as miners go bust. Difficulty will decline accordingly. This brings me to the other side of the cause and effect relationship of Bitcoin's hash rate and BTC's price. As I just explained, a decline in BTC's price can cause a decline in Bitcoin's hash rate. However, a decline in Bitcoin's hash rate can also cause a decline in BTC's price. China's crackdown on crypto mining last May is a great example. Bitcoin's hash rate fell first as miners were forced offline and BTC's price followed. This is because the news of a crypto mining ban in China was very bearish, especially since other countries started raising concerns about Bitcoin's energy use. You can find out why those concerns are unfounded using the link in the description. I digress. Now, believe it or not, but Bitcoin could be about to see the same cause-and-effect relationship play out. That's because winter is coming and countries are trying to conserve energy. The European Union recently warned that it would put a pause on crypto mining in the event of an energy shortage. In Canada, the province of Quebec is trying to get approval from the federal government to end its contracts with crypto miners citing energy use concerns. The US state of New York Recently, passed a two year crypto mining ban for environmental reasons, and we could see similar decrees from other states. I suspect that a crash in BTC's price combined with crypto mining bans in certain countries will be enough to bring Bitcoin's hash rate down by the 40 to 50% it has fallen in previous crypto bear markets. Again, chances are that BTC's price will bottom around the time this happens, along with other cryptos. The fourth reason why the crypto bear market is likely to continue is the upcoming global energy crisis that's already being felt acutely in many countries. The one that comes to mind the most for me is Ukraine, with 80% of the country reportedly being without power due to Russian attacks. Although Ukraine will likely be able to repair most of its energy infrastructure, it probably won't be enough to prevent another wave of refugees from fleeing to neighbouring European countries. In case you missed the memo, other European countries aren't doing so well on the energy side either. As such, the influx of refugees alone could lead to blackouts in some countries. This is because many European countries have said they can avoid blackouts if citizens conserve enough energy. Something tells me they didn't factor in the demand coming from millions of new refugees. European politicians also don't seem to be factoring in the practical effects their proposed price cap on natural gas will have. Setting a price cap means that the demand for gas won't come down to match supply. This means that gas shortages are almost guaranteed, and history has shown this to be the case.
3: and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
4: If that wasn't bad enough, the United States and its allies will be imposing a price cap on Russian oil starting on the 5th of December. Naturally, the U.S. Department of the Treasury has threatened to sanction any country that violates this price cap. Meanwhile, the Russian government recently announced that it will stop exporting oil to any country that goes along with the price cap. This means that the countries that comply with the price cap could soon be short on oil, and this comes at a time when OPEC has cut global oil production already. On the demand side of the equation, meanwhile, we have the United States, which will soon be looking to refill its strategic petroleum reserve, which has been emptied by the current administration in a bid to keep inflation low. Many investors are also expecting China's economy to open up again sometime early next year. The recent protests against the CCP's pandemic policies suggest China's reopening could happen much sooner than initially expected. If it does, it will create a massive surge in manufacturing-related energy demand. These and other factors will cause energy prices around the world to skyrocket over the winter. This will do direct damage to the economy in the form of higher prices, and it will do indirect damage to the economy in the form of higher interest rates from central banks trying to fight inflation. Obviously, it's difficult to see how the crypto market could go in any other direction but down, in these kinds of conditions. Never mind the crypto mining bans, there will be millions of people selling everything they can to keep the lights on in their homes and businesses. That includes cryptocurrencies. The fifth reason why the crypto bear market is likely to continue ties into the fourth, and that's the uncertainty around how high interest rates will go and how high they will stay. This ultimately depends on how high inflation goes and how high it will stay. Something we'll only know in a few months' time. This is probably why investors currently expect the Fed to stop raising interest rates sometime early next year. To be clear, stopping rate hikes isn't the same as bringing interest rates back down. Rate cuts aren't expected to occur until later next year at the earliest and could come as late as early 2024. Then again, rate cuts could come much sooner if something in the economy starts to break because of high interest rates. This is basically why there is a correlation between the Fed dropping interest rates and the bottom of a stock market cycle. Something broke, so the Fed dropped interest rates in response. More often than not, the thing that would break was the stock market. This is why investors have become so conditioned to buy the dip. They expect the Fed to step in to save the stock market every time it crashes to record lows, because this is what the Fed has been doing for years. This time it's different, however, and I know it's a cliché to say that, but it really is. Inflation is the highest it's been in almost half a century. Central banks must bring this inflation down at all costs or else it will do even more damage to the economy and could even lead to hyperinflation of some fiat currencies. However, this doesn't mean the Fed won't blink when something breaks. It's just that the threshold for what needs to break is much higher than the stock market dropping by double digits. As it so happens, some Fed officials are starting to get concerned that something big will break if they keep hiking rates. This is why the Federal Open Markets Committee, or FOMC, agreed it would be appropriate to start slowing the pace of rate hikes. If you watched our video summarising the minutes of the Fed's aforementioned meeting, you'll know the central bank may stop raising rates as soon as January. Now, this is all well and good, but I'll reiterate that pausing is not the same as pivoting. Depending on the inflation situation, we could see lots of capital flow to traditionally safe haven assets like government bonds and precious metals. It's possible that cryptocurrencies like BTC will be a part of this basket, but the fact of the matter is that investors see Bitcoin and other large-cap cryptocurrencies as being akin to tech stocks. These kinds of assets will continue to struggle in a high interest rate environment, which, again, could last until 2024. The final reason why the crypto bear market is likely to continue has to do with technical analysis. If you're subscribed to my weekly newsletter or have been keeping up to date with our weekly crypto reviews, you'll know that I've been watching a massive bear flag form on Bitcoin's monthly chart for months now. This massive bear flag seemed to have finally broken last month. I had initially expected it to break back in July, but BTC managed to hold on for three more months before breaking down. This begs the question of just how low this bear flag will go, and the answer really depends on how you measure it. If you measure from the initial bear flag from three months ago, then BTC is headed for the 10k range, and in my opinion, this is the last stop. However, if you measure from the more recent breakdown, then it's possible that we've already seen the bear market bottom at around 15k. What's interesting is that we saw the same double bear flag pattern on BTC's monthly chart during the previous crypto bear market in 2018. Back then, the second breakdown initially looked like the bear market bottom, but in the months that followed, BTC hit the target of the initial break down to 4k. As the saying goes, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Considering all the factors I've mentioned in this video and others, it's quite possible that we will see something similar happen again. After all, there's no shortage of bullish crypto-catalysts coming in early to mid-2023 that could cause a recovery. More about that in the description. Now, before I go, I want to bring your attention to one last indicator and that's the balance of BTC on cryptocurrency exchanges. As you may have heard, the balance of BTC on exchanges is the lowest it's been in almost five years. This means that BTC's price is going to be very volatile in the coming months, and that means that the kind of technical analysis we just did may be way off the target. For instance, BTC could temporarily fall much lower than 10k due to a lack of liquidity and liquidations By any leverage traders who are left. This means that you need to be extremely careful if you're planning on trading cryptocurrencies in the coming months. I will be dollar cost averaging into promising crypto projects and you can find out which ones I'll be accumulating by signing up to my weekly newsletter. The link for that will be in the description. Anyways, thank you so much for watching guys and I will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Coin Bureau podcast. If you'd like to learn more about cryptocurrency, you can visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com/forward/slash/coinbureau. You can also go to coinbureau.com for loads more information about all things crypto. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @coinbureau, all one word, and I'm also active on TikTok and Instagram too.
2: or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.